Hello, this is Dr. Embriette Hyde, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to The Probiotic Life. I am your host, Ben Klenner. Today on the podcast, we are talking to a doctor of integrative and molecular biomedical science. Now, try and say that three times fast. Uh, Dr. Embriette Hyde uh, was referred to me through Christina Campbell. You might have heard her show a couple episodes ago. And we chat about the microbiome because she was actually part of the American Gut Project. That's right. She uh, was at Night Labs in uh, UC San Diego. Um, And so she really knows about the microbiome. She did her PhD dissertation on the microbiome. So you can check out all about Dr. Hyde at drhydenotjekyll.com and she's got links to all of her papers and what she was doing with the American Gut Project there. And in this episode, we really get into some of her story about how she became a a scientist in the microbiome and recently how she has stepped into uh, a different job of writing for science. So... I'm really excited to bring you this episode and to continue this podcast going on. So I'd love your feedback. Uh, If you have any suggestions for guests, that would be great. And I'm starting to look to partner with some companies, some businesses to sponsor the podcast. So if you have one in mind or you do own one, uh, get in contact, let me know. And without further ado, let's get on to the interview. Today on the podcast, we have a doctor of the microbiome. Um, I heard about her through Christina Campbell, who we had on a few episodes ago. And um, she said that, uh, Christina said that this lady was very interesting and fun to talk with on the panel discussion that they had. Welcome to the show, Embriette Hyde. Thank you, happy to be here. Uh, Thanks for uh, sharing your time with us. And uh, you know, this podcast is all about connecting back to nature and the way that we're, the focus that we have on that is uh, how soil health affects our human health and how our human health uh, affects the, the health of the planet around us. Yeah, that's so true. We're so interconnected. So you're just telling me um, you did your research on the microbiome. Do you want to share a little bit about uh, what that entails? What does research on the microbiome entail? That's a hard question to start with because the microbiome itself is so varied, right? So most basically, if you want to look at a microbiome, Um, whether it's a mouth microbiome or a soil microbiome um, or basically any environment or human body site that you are interested in, you have to take a sample. Um, You have to collect a sample from whatever it is that you're interested in looking at. Then you get the bacterial DNA out from that sample. It's kind of like a fingerprint, I think, is the best way to think about it. You can sequence that DNA and then use supercomputers and open access software to analyze those sequences and figure out which bacteria were present in your community. And once you have that, 
then that's where the fun really begins because now you have to try to figure out what the heck that means. You know, okay, so I have some proteobacteria in my sample and I have some termicutes and bacteroidetes, so what? <laughs> what do I do with that? Um, and so, you know, when it comes to the human microbiome, what a lot of people are looking at is imbalances in the community, so changes in the abundance of certain bacteria in relation to others and healthy people versus sick people. And sick meaning anything from inflammatory bowel disease to cancer to autism um, and everything in between researchers are looking at. Um, I uh, was actually looking at oral microbes um, in the context of cardiovascular disease during my PhD. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Uh, but it's really complex. Uh, I, I think the best way to try to get people to understand how complex it is is to think of just the Milky Way galaxy. Um, we can't even take a picture of the whole galaxy because it's so big. And if you're to take just a picture of a small portion of that galaxy, you see this amazing number of stars. There's so many you can't count them. For each one of those stars, you have magnitudes more bacteria just inside your own body. <laughs> so when you put it into that um, conceptual framework, I think people then really start to understand how complex this is. Um, and how difficult it is to study and how hard it is to answer those questions of what it means when you're looking at microbial communities of the human or of an environment. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people are, are in awe when you just look up at the stars and, and even the ones that you can see, it's just, it's overwhelming. It's, it's awe-inspiring. Exactly. It's hard to think of that, of something bigger than that being inside of your body, but that's the thing. You can't see bacteria with the naked eye. They're too small. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's the invisible life within us. And I think that also makes it a little harder to grasp. Mm -hmm. A world within a world. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And what, where my mind goes is imagine how much data that is. How, like, that's no wonder we, <laughs> ne we need uh, quantum computers. Oh yeah, there's no way you'd be able to, you would burn literally your laptop if you tried to do this with your laptop. Mm -hmm. So take us back a little bit, Embriette. How did you come to do what you do? Where, where did you start? And maybe what are some of the, the mindsets that um, you developed along the way that helped you get to where you are? Yeah, so where, where I am now, actually, I recently had a career switch to science writer. So I'm, I'm brand new, just a few months. Um, and it's been a long journey to get to this point. I've always been interested in communicating science to the public, but I never really seriously contemplated doing what I'm doing until till maybe about a year ago. Um, so I did my PhD in the microbiome. I loved the research. I loved being at the bench. I loved analyzing the data and trying to see, you know, what mystery is going to come out now that I'm going to be able to solve. Um, and I started looking at the microbiome in, in your mouth and how it helps maintain cardiovascular health, which was something that was relatively new. You know, everybody's really interested and focused on the gut microbiome. So I've always been one to try to do something a little different. So I was like, well, if you're all looking at the gut, I'm going to look at the mouth. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that was a really fun project. And I also had a little side project, which also was very interesting and abnormal, looking at decomposition, human decomposition, and how the bacteria that are in us and on us actually contribute to how we break down after we die, which could have some really important forensics applications. So I was really taking a, an odd angle to it um, in the sense that not many people were looking at that per se. They were looking at disease and how do we cure disease? And I was looking at people already dead. <laughs> um, so dying from disease or, cause I, I yeah, I read that you uh, were able to get some access to, to some cadavers. How, <laughs> do, do you know how they died or do you just sample them afterwards? Uh, so we were not allowed to know how they died. Um, they right, were okay. individuals who just donated their bodies to science. The only time we knew the cause of death was if it was from a highly infectious bacterium or virus that could also make us right. sick. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was, that was a lot of fun. And during that time, 
you know, one of the things that you learn as a grad student, at least in my program at Baylor College of Medicine, is how to write grants to try to get funding. And when I was a grad student, that was really the first big um, lapse in government funding. You know, the NIH and the other government agencies had a huge drop in the budget. And so a lot of students, myself included, were having a hard time finding a lab to go into. So for me, it was always on my mind to try to get funding for my project so that I could do more. And there's always this portion of the grant where you have to talk about the significance of your work and why it's important. And it was then that I started thinking about the public. I was like, you know, the public has a big say in the budget, whether we know it or not, it's true. Um, and if the public doesn't understand what the heck we're doing, then Congress isn't going to want to give the funds. And then here we are um, in the exact position I was in. So that's when I really started thinking about, you know, what can I do to try to get people to understand my work more? Um, and so I took the route that most people took, uh, which was getting a postdoc. <laughs> so I, I joined the lab of Dr. Rob Knight as a postdoc where um, I focus a little bit more on environmental microbes. So you're talking about soil. I was looking at um, different animals and humans in captivity and in houses and how we share our microbes with our environment. But then this really interesting and awesome opportunity was presented to me by Rob, uh, which was managing the American Gut Project, which is a citizen science microbiome project. And considering I was so interested in teaching the public about science, it just seemed like a no-brainer um, to be involved in that. And through that project, I had really cool interactions with um, members of the broader community. It was really humbling and awesome to see how enthusiastic people are about the research. These are non-scientists, so people who haven't got their PhDs or whatever. They're just people who heard about it on the news or read about it somewhere and they're really enthusiastic and want to support the research. So that was really cool. And I got to travel around the world talking about my work to a lot of different people. Um, I started a blog for the project. But one thing that really kept bothering me was that I would occasionally get questions from people that really made it obvious to me that they had been reading something that was a little hypey, maybe a little clickbait is the term, you know, in media. Um, things that were hyping up the research to get people excited about it, but not effectively telling them where the research actually was. And so people were getting very excited, thinking that the microbiome was, you know, for example, holding the cure to autism, wanting to give themselves fecal transplants, which is really dangerous. Um, and so I was like, man, what are we doing wrong? We're doing something wrong. We're not accurately telling people about our work and helping them understand science so that they understand, you know, why the microbiome isn't the cure to everything. Um, and so I started really thinking about how I can address this problem. Um, as I was thinking about that, um, a company found me and they were looking for an editor. So it just clicked. I left my position um, with American Gut to join this company and now I'm writing full time trying to achieve my goal of better public education and broader community education on the microbiome and the science behind it. So long answer to your question, but that is my journey and that's how I got here. <laughs> right. Um, it does sound like a, it was, it's a long journey over quite a few years then, isn't it? Yeah. So I, um, I started my PhD studies in 2010. Um, and I started my postdoc in 2014. So yeah, I guess that's about seven year journey is what it took me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and going back a little bit before that, uh, what are some of the, the mindsets maybe from you, uh, uh, your family life growing up, any significant events in your life that actually, uh, helped you, Define who you are as a person and define how you're going about doing what you're doing now. Yeah, there. so there's a couple. Um, the first is I've always enjoyed writing. So I guess it's not a shock that I'm a writer now. What is a shock is that it took so long for me to get to this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've always enjoyed writing. My dad told me when I was really young 
to keep a journal in case I ever wanted to write a book about my life. And so I have these journals that I wrote when I was like 10 years old and I read them. I'm like, Oh man, that's, it's, it's funny. (laughs) Um, but there was also a period in high school where I, I suffered a bout of depression and as is often the case with people who are um, suffering depression, really wasn't interested in anything, didn't care about anything. I wasn't trying in school. Um, yet I aced a science test. I think it was a freshman. So freshman level science, biology, I guess it was. Not only did I ace it, but I got the extra credit problems right. So I got like 102% on this test. And I was like, okay, <laughs> if I can literally not care about anything and be this down in the dumps and do this well at science, maybe I should be doing science. (laughs) And from that point forward, that's kind of when I followed the science path. Um, And it just took me a while to realize that I could actually join my passions of science and writing together and do something that can make a difference for people. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a area of science that can really make a difference. And I mean, as you know, there's so much um, research coming out about it. So let's talk a little bit about um, that hype that you mentioned before, because I know the same thing with um, fermented foods. You know, we talked to Sandor cats on here and people think like one of them, you know, you can choose whichever one, kombucha or sauerkraut or whatever, could be a panacea, you know, could be the cure-all for everything. And it's not, and no one actually ever said that it was, but there's a lot of hype about that. How, how do yeah. we go about um, educating people? How do we go about educating ourselves? What are we actually looking for? So I think probably, you know, and this is an ongoing question that I have too, so I'm still learning. And if you ask me this question in a year, my answer will probably be a little different. But the biggest thing that I've seen so far is people don't understand the scientific process, right? So um, you may have a press release come out about a study that found that a probiotic could help alleviate symptoms of autism in a mouse model. And then people get really excited. They're like, wow, autism. Yeah, let's use probiotics. Um, You know, my kid's going to be cured. But what is missing is that people don't understand that animal models are very, very different from humans for a number of different reasons. And so if you find this in an animal model, that doesn't mean it's going to work in humans. What's really critical about animals is they're really highly inbred. So genetically, they're almost identical. Um, And so you get rid of that huge genetic factor that exists in humans that makes us all really different from one another. Um, for one, and then, you know, animals are eating the same thing. They're living in the same cage. They never go anywhere. Um, humans are not like that. Uh, and so what needs to happen after you see the initial results in animals is you need to undergo trials in humans too, lots of different humans, because you need to figure out, you know, what people does it work for? Who doesn't it work for? Are there dangers involved? Could there be side effects? And that takes a long time. And the reasons for that are varied. Funding is a big one. Um, Recruitment is a big one. You know, it takes time to recruit people into the study. You have to make sure that you're doing everything ethically. That all takes approval. So there's a lot of things involved in it that take time. And we're not letting people know what those things are. So they get impatient. They're like, well, it worked in an animal and you're telling me not to do it to my kid. Now you must be hiding the cure from me. And then they get mad. Um, And so that's why I really like citizen science projects like American Gut, because it gives people a hands-on experience with the scientific process. They get to learn and see firsthand what it actually means to do a science project. Um, And that is critical in helping people understand why the science might go a little slower than they want it to. Um, On the other hand, on the other side of that, you know, is if those hypey news press releases or news stories weren't written in the first place, you know, then, then people wouldn't take it out of context. Um, but we need them, right? Because it's, it's like I was saying before in the beginning, when we first started chatting, if members of the broader community don't know why they should care about our science and they're not enthusiastic about it, 
it has really serious downstream effects. So we really do need to teach people about it. So those press releases and those news articles are important. So we need to come to this balance of not being so hypey about it, helping people understand why it's important and why it's exciting, but also helping them understand where we really actually are today. Christina Campbell is a great example. I love her. I love her work. She's not um, a PhD scientist in the microbiome field, but she really writes very, um, very responsibly and very truthfully. Um, but, you know, some don't have that type of self-control or that type of um, responsibility. So, you know, there's a lot of factors going into it that, that we can't control. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's um, great that there is uh, news getting out there about the microbiome. But again, yeah, like uh, what I try and do is when I see some, some news about the microbiome, I'm like, okay, where's their reference? And then click yeah. on the reference. And usually their reference is another media article that references a paper. So it's like, you know, double removed from the actual science, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's actually um, a perfect piece of advice to give to people, you know, go to the actual source. And if you can't access the paper because it's not open access or you can access it, but you have no idea what it's saying because it's full of these scientific terms, email the author, you know, not everybody, but many scientists are totally willing and happy to talk to anybody and clear up questions and clear up confusion. Um, that's the other thing that we need to, to really work on letting people know is you can talk to us. I mean, we're just regular people. We're not, you know, these crazy, uh, I think too, too long scientists have been seen as, you know, gods and we're superior and unapproachable, but that's, that's not true. Not at all. Mm-hmm. I think um, that reminds me of, I forget his name, but um, the doctor who came up with the germ theory of uh, washing your hands. Um, everyone thought he was crazy until, <laughs> you know, proven that he that actually, no, it's actually good for doctors, especially doctors, to wash their hands. Um, and then once, once the um, medical association took that on, then it's like, okay, well, this is, like this, we know this, this is, this is the new knowledge. This is like, you have to listen to us about what, you know, what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Actually, this is gonna, I don't know, maybe make me sound like a bad person, but I, I loved that when I was getting my PhD. Cause I was like, you know, PhDs rule the world. Nobody really thinks about us. They're like, Oh, they're just the scientists. Everybody loves the doctors, but we tell the doctors what to do. <laughs> like it's our research. <laughs> so, you know, give us credit. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot of a uh, lot of years studying for <laughs> not always so much credit. Yeah, but you know that being said, a lot of MDs, you know, people with the true medical degree, also do really awesome research. So it's it's not just the PhDs. Just every once in a while, I'd like a little more credit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Emriet, let's get down into the microbiome of the human body, at least. Um, you know, this, the probiotic life, uh, when I describe it to people, is not just about the microbiome. It's not just about probiotics. It's about probiotic in terms of creating life, creating life around us. I imagine um, that wherever I go, I'm actually creating life, you know, in my garden, especially because I came from a horticultural background. Um, releasing those composting worms everywhere, um, spraying, you know, um, my um, compost teas and all that stuff, releasing life. So that's sort of the garden side of it. But in terms of the, the microbiome, what are some of the main uh, bacterias and uh, fungi that are, that are helping us, that are, that are interacting with us? So it, it's more of a balance, I think, rather than specific species. That's not always the case. So for example, probiotics, it's a tricky subject, um, but in many specific disease cases, there are specific probiotics that actually uh, really help um, and help make somebody healthier, reduce inflammation, um, relieve diarrhea, you know, whatever it is in the context. But most of the time, when you're talking about health and health itself is also very hard to define. Um, 
it's a balance that we're that we're talking about. There are several bacterial species that are generally recognized to be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory. Uh, one of the major anti-inflammatory ones is called Fecalobacterium prausnitzii. That one um, is really, really good at breaking down um, undigestible fibers. You know, the human body doesn't digest fiber, which is why when you eat beans, you fart. Um, because your bacteria are doing it for you, and then they produce gas as a byproduct. But one of the other byproducts they produce is a um, type of molecule called a short-chain fatty acid. And these are really good for your human cells in your intestines. They keep them healthy. They're a source of energy. Uh, they help keep the barrier tight, so they keep the cells close together, uh, avoiding something called leaky gut. Um, and so Fecalobacterium prosnitzii produces a lot of these short-chain fatty acids. There are others uh, in the gut that do this as well. Eubacterium um, is another one. Uh, most of the probiotics are in the lactobacillus bifidobacterium. Um, I think those are household names by now. Everybody has heard of lactobacillus bifidobacterium. There are some Clostridium species that uh, scientists are now exploring for their potential to act as probiotics, but that research is still pretty young. And that I, I like this example because it shows how complex it is because one of the major pathogens in humans is actually a Clostridium species, Clostridium difficile or C. diff, uh, which is what most people probably know it as. So within the same type of bacteria, genus, you can have good bacteria and bad bacteria. So that's what makes it so complicated <laughs> and so complex. Um, researchers are also looking at several bacteroides species uh, as well in terms of helping improve health in certain conditions. So um, Sarcosmasmanian uh, at Caltech has done a lot of research in autism and so in mice. And so he's been looking at bacteroides um, as probiotics in mice for autism. Um, hopefully one day that will uh, start translating to humans. So, um, but really a lot of times it's just a balance, right? You, you do something that tips the balance and then pathogenic bacteria that are either very rare or not present at all can now take a foothold, which is what happens in the case of C. diff. You know, somebody's in the hospital um, for something, they have to get surgery or whatever. They take antibiotics causes an imbalance, wipes out a lot of good bacteria in their system, and now C. diff can take hold. And it does a great job of that. <laughs> and then people get super sick. Um, but, you know, there's thousands of species that are capable of living in the human gut, and I just told you about maybe five or six. Um, so there's so many there that we still don't know a lot about um, that we're working really hard to find out. Actually, that was one of the things... That happened a lot with American gut. We would, you know, see something and people would ask me, well, what does that do? Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows. If you go to PubMed and search it, you're not going to find anything. <laughs> and that happens a lot. But that's why we need projects like American gut and others um, so that those things are not rare anymore, that we identify them more often and then can start figuring out what they do and what it means. Is it pro-inflammatory? Is it anti-inflammatory? Is it just hanging around, not doing anything? Um, big puzzle. <laughs> it is a big puzzle, and but I think uh, you made a really great point there. Well, actually, you made quite a few great points. But um, the fact that we're trying to keep everything in balance, rather than, um, although it is important to learn about the different uh, bacteria, I think for the gen for someone like me who's uh, non-academic. We're trying to keep everything in balance because what is a good bacteria, what is a bad bacteria, you know? Like you said, I, I believe it's even um, E. coli. There's, there's um, you know, we all have it in us, but it's when it gets out of, uh, when it gets into high levels, that's when it's dangerous. Yeah, you're right. And it's, it's not even that. It's actually even a little more subtle than that. Um, their species and their strains. And so bacteria, unlike humans, mutate rather quickly. Um, that's why they're so good at becoming resistant to, to antibiotics. And so E. coli is one of those that has obtained a couple of mutations 
And so in some strains, they have a mutation that allows them to make people sick. Basically, they produce something that uh, the human body reacts to in a negative way. So it doesn't even have to be there at high levels. Um, it could be, but really it just needs to produce that toxin or that protein. Um, so H E. coli, I think, oh, 157 was the big one, right? That was present in the ground beef. That just indicates that it had uh, a certain toxic protein present. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too. I was just talking to my wife about this. Lactobacillus, it's a whole family. It's a whole family of different kinds of bacteria. It's not one kind of bacteria. So when they say you have lactobacillus in your yogurt or in your kefir, it's not one thing, right? There's all different. There's, how, how many would you say in, in the lactobacillus family? Oh, that I don't even know. But in terms of the probiotic ones, the ones that we've recognized and tested and then are, you know, in production, uh, several dozen. Um, but in terms of recognizable species that may not be probiotics, I don't even know. That's a great question. You've stumped me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm interested too about the, you know, all the different kinds Um we talk about Korean natural farming on this uh, podcast as well and the same sort of thing there with the plants. We're, cult- we're culturing not necessarily one specific species of um, bacteria or fungi but actually creating an environment for, as far as we can tell, all of uh, lots of the ben- beneficial microbes to thrive and that sounds similar to what we're doing here with a, uh, when we're trying to and starting to think about the human microbiome. It's just creating uh, an environment for life to thrive, to be balanced. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So in terms of what you're doing right now, you're, you're writing um, and you're, you, you started your own journal. Is that right? Yeah, I've been blogging um, a little bit more. I mean, it's something that I have done on and off throughout the years, but didn't have a lot of time to to devote to it. Um, but now, since my job is writing, I have a really good excuse to practice writing uh, because <laughs> I can't do my job well if I don't write. So it's been great because I get to, to work and then also um, have my own personal blog as well. So that's been a lot of fun. And, and what is something... Um since you've come out of you know, recently, come out of, of the the lab, uh, something that's developed in in the last little while since you've been writing in the microbiome. Oh, in the microbiome, you know, there's so much. There's different things every single day. I think the one topic that I wouldn't say has developed since I left, but continues to receive a lot of attention, and is something that I'm really excited about is this idea of precision medicine as it relates to the microbiome. So precision medicine is this concept that takes into account the individuality of everybody. Um, We're all different. And so to think that a one-size-fits-all approach works is kind of crazy. And we already know that. I mean, we've seen how many diets are out there, right? You have this the Atkins diet, you have the South Beach diet, and you have pictures of people before and after, they all look exactly the same, uh, but they all did it with these different diets. And then you try it and you have no results. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we've seen this for years, so it's not a shocker that you need to take take kind of an individualized approach. So there are research groups uh, that started in Israel in the context of blood sugar control Um, But I think there's a lot of groups out there now who are trying to apply it to a lot of different um, health and disease states. But taking into account not just the microbiome, but what people are eating, their genetics, um, what the microbiome is doing. So not just which bacteria are there, but what molecules are they producing and how does that affect you? Um, Your environmental exposures, um, all of that has an input. So taking into account all these factors... And then trying to figure out, you know, if I give you this probiotic or if I give you this diet or if I tell you to eat this fermented food, will it affect you in the way that we want? Um, in the case of the research I was mentioning, it's control of blood sugar in diabetic individuals. Uh, but you can imagine that 
you know, possibly you could do this to help alleviate symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so there's a lot of really frantic um, and feverish work happening in terms of microbiome and precision medicine, which was not something that I really got involved in because it really just started to pick up steam and it's it's not what I was working on and, and certainly not what I'm working on now. I can write about it. <laughs> um, but I'm really, really anxiously watching that because I think that is really where the future lies in terms of microbiome and and when we think about bringing it to the clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christina Campbell mentioned that there was uh, another project that Rob Knight was uh, a part of, maybe not um, heading up, was the, the Earth Microbiome yeah, so, Project. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And actually, the American Gut Project is a, a daughter project within the Earth Microbiome Project. And Rob is one of the co-founders, along with Janet Jansen and Jack Gilbert. And basically, the idea there is to catalog the microbiomes of every single environment on earth that we can reach. Hopefully every single one, that would be ideal. Um, That's a big project. It's a huge project. So of course it's still ongoing and probably will be for a long, long time. Um, The paper was actually just recently published uh, describing results from upwards of 30,000 samples collected from environments as varied as grasslands to ice caps to different types of soils um, and everything in between, coral reefs, um, sponges in the ocean, humans, of course, because we are also an environment on the earth. (laughs) We're our own little sub-environment. So that has been a really cool project. Um, And the, the little bit of research that I really briefly mentioned talking about how I was looking at how humans and animals interact with their environment and share microbes with their environment. That project was um, a sub-project within EMP. So I guess in a way I've, I've been involved in the Earth Microbiome Project as well. Mm-hmm. It sounds very exciting and like, um, you know, a big project. How do you process all that data? Where, <laughs> where is it stored? Well, that's a great question. So most of the actual sequencing data will be stored on the, on the supercomputer cluster at UC San Diego. But the Earth Microbiome Project has a consortium of hundreds of researchers from around the world. Um, same as American Gut. As you mentioned, it's a lot of data and there's no way that any single person or even group of people in the night lab could pour through this data and find something meaningful from it in the next decade. <laughs> we need collaboration. Um, and that's exactly what we have. You know, we've been fortunate to work with really awesome people from various different backgrounds and expertise to help analyze this data and think critically about it and figure out what it means. So can citizen science actually help in processing the data? Is there a way of doing that? I know, for example, um, looking at space, people are able are able to actually take a grid or, or like a piece of a grid and then them themselves analyze what's in that. Is there something like that that, that we can do for uh, this data? Not this data particularly, but there are things in the works. Um, so I can tell you that. Uh, what what I mean, people can analyze it. It's just not as simple and straightforward as what you're saying yet. So, for example, fold it, which I think is like the first citizen science project where literally you just had to let your computer go to sleep and the screensaver comes on and now you're doing science, which is awesome. There's nothing that automatic (laughs) for microbiome yet. Uh, But I do know that there are some things in the works. But, you know, that being said, there were a lot of citizen scientists, part of the American Gut Project, who contributed to data analysis, whether for their own, just because they were curious, or to actually help us out. We had both. uh, both ends of the spectrum there. So it's possible. Um, it's going to get easier. Awesome. So we just need those quantum computers. <laughs> exactly. So Embria, you uh, mentioned before, uh, I think before we actually started recording, you mentioned the gut-brain access, and that's something that you, you've been um, working on and writing about. Can you share a little bit more about that from your perspective? Yeah, it's actually really really intriguing. Um, 
it's some, I, like, I'm really happy right now that I'm reading all these papers and learning more about it because I knew about it, um, just from being in the field, but I certainly was not an expert or intimately familiar with it. And there's this really complex and intimate crosstalk between your brain and your gut. Um, your gut and what happens in the gut can affect your brain and vice versa. And this has been recognized for a long, long time. This is not a new concept. Um, 50 years or more, people have been talking about how the brain can affect the gut and the gut affects the brain, mainly through hormones um, and different stimuli mechanisms. But more recently, people have wondered and started researching how microbes can have an effect there because there are so many microbes in our gut. Uh, it just would be shocking if there was no no effect there. And so there's been a lot of work coming out in the past five or 10 years showing that there are definite associations between the microbiome and depression, um, autism, Parkinson's disease, and even Alzheimer's and schizophrenia, uh, multiple sclerosis. So there's a lot of studies in animals, um, a few in humans showing that there is some type of connection there. We're trying to unravel it. Um, some of it seems to be tied to production of neurotransmitters. So actually, um, GABA, gamma, aminobutyric acid, and serotonin are produced at high levels in your gut. If you ask somebody about serotonin, if you were to ask me about serotonin five years ago, I was aware that it's really important in depression, and I also thought it was produced in your brain. Um, but actually more is produced in your gut than in your brain. And when I learned that, I was like, wow, that is, that is so amazing. And so then you start thinking about, well, if our gut microbes have an effect here, um, then what I do to affect my gut microbes can have an effect. And it gives you this whole new perspective on what you're doing from what you're eating to the amount of sleep that you're trying to get to whether or not you're binge drinking, you know, you have this whole new thought process. At least for me, I'm like super hyper aware now uh, of what I'm doing and how that could affect what's happening in my gut. You know, surprisingly enough, depression is really strongly associated with inflammation. I didn't know that um, before, but imbalances in your gut microbiome community can cause inflammation crazy. It's crazy, right? Um, it's not to say that your microbiome causes these things. I don't think we know that yet. We don't know that in, in most cases when for any disease that we're talking about, but it's really intriguing to think about, you know, okay, should I reach for that piece of cake today or should I maybe have a healthier dessert? Uh, because not only am I keeping my microbes healthy, but I'm keeping my brain happy, <laughs> you know, like, could it really have that big of an effect? Um, it's crazy, but it kind of makes sense because I've heard so many stories from people where they changed their diet and suddenly now they're so much happier than they were before. The reasons behind that could be complex. Maybe they're happier because they lost weight and they feel better about themselves. Maybe they're happier because they have more energy. So they're not feeling totally drained. But maybe they're happier because their microbiome changed and now it's changing serotonin and their brain actually is reacting to that. Who knows? But the potential is there. And that's what's so crazy exciting about it. That's why I love it. That's amazing. It's it, Again, I just come back to there's so many factors. Um, you, could, you could get overwhelmed, but also you could just start to do the little things, everything, everything is like a cumulative effect. Um, yeah. I remember I, I had a real hard time just after I came out of high school and I was, I had the opportunity, I was living in Vancouver, BC at the time. I had the opportunity to go and work um, at a summer camp um, on one of the Gulf Islands up there. And I had such a great time that, uh, that summer that I actually went back there three uh, um, four years in a row. It was on an island. It was in nature. You know, there's so many things that were they're good about it. But I've been reading this book called The Secret Life of Your Microbiome. And they, they talk about um, the microbes in the air that we breathe actually affect us. Uh, it's the microbes in the soil. It's everything that we touch. Obviously, there's um, uh, human interaction and psychology involved. 
But there's so many different things to, to get us um, going in a better direction with our physical health and our mental health as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think sometimes we, we put ourselves in this box a little bit and we, and I think it's just because the way science has gone for so long, uh, we think, okay, it has to be one thing. So it has to be the microbiome. So what can I do to make my microbiome healthier? But it doesn't have to be just one thing. I can do something that makes my microbiome healthier, but that also affects me in other ways, not related to my microbiome. And all of those things can work together for the final result. Uh, and that is the concept behind systems biology. And that's how we need to start changing our, our thinking, I think. Take dogs, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of studies now have shown that having a dog um, uh, changes the microbiome and reduces the risk of asthma and allergies in kids. But a lot of studies for a long time have also shown that having a dog is really good for mental health. It helps reduce depression. Um, dogs are, you know, I mean, the service animals, right, for people who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So instead of saying, I think I'm going to get a dog today so that my microbiome is healthier, why don't I say, I think I'm going to get a dog today because not only is it going to make my microbiome healthier, it could make the microbiome of my children healthier, it's going to make me happier, it's going to make my kids happier, it's going to make, you know, everybody who... You see what I mean? It's like this whole systems concept. Let's start looking at it that way rather than just focusing on one component because we're never going to be able to separate those components out. Never. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Sounds sort of like permaculture as well. It's, a, it's about system design. Yeah. So what do you? how do you um, specifically as a scientist, as someone who understands probably as much as anybody could about the microbiome and about um, bacteria and fungi. What do you do in your life to help yourself, to to, um, improve your health? So a lot of what I'm doing right now is is focused on diet. Um, It's the easiest way that we know of right now to affect the microbiome. You you know, they always say you are what you eat, but like your microbes are what you eat, (laughs) literally. So what I'm doing a lot more of now and really trying to pay attention to is eating uh, foods that are high in what's called microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So it's the plant polysaccharides, basically, that your body can't break down, that your microbes break down. They love it. And if they have a lot of that, um, And then they kind of are distracted from doing destructive things. So a lot of bacteria in your gut also like to eat mucus. And there's a lot of mucus lining your intestines that protects them and keeps them safe. If you're not giving bacteria the food that it needs, it will eat that mucus. And then you can have a whole bunch of problems. So I'm really trying to up my vegetable intake, which for me has been difficult because I just, I don't know how to cook vegetables in a way that makes them not boring <laughs> if there's a better way to say it like you can only eat so many green beans with butter um <laughs> so that's been a really fun learning experience because i've been trying to look up recipes and things and new unique ways actually nuts and seeds have a lot of max in them as well um and even particular grains you know but you have to be careful with the grains because a lot of grains that you get at the store these days have been refined and bleached and they actually remove the part of the grain that has all the fiber in it um so now i'm thinking about getting my own it's called wheat berries didn't know that before um but the flour for bread actually comes from wheat berries and so you can get wheat berries from amazon and you can grind them yourself and make flour and make your own bread that now has all of the fiber there that your gut microbes will love to feast on. I also really like fermented foods, so I brew my own kombucha. I've been doing it for about a year now. It's way better than the store-bought kombucha. If anybody likes kombucha and they're currently getting it from the store, I highly recommend just making it yourself. Um, It tastes better, plus it's still alive. I I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the U.S., um, there's regulations around pasteurization. So usually what happens with kombucha and other fermented foods like sauerkrauts and kimchi, most of the time they've been pasteurized. So the culture is not alive anymore. You make it yourself, it's alive. So you get all of those beneficial living bacteria plus whatever they're producing during the fermentation process directly into your system. 
Um, so that's a lot of what I've been doing. I have always been into exercising. I mean, I was uh, a track athlete in my day, so there's still a lot of evidence out there that exercise is good for you for a number of reasons. It can affect your microbiome. It makes you happy, reduces depression, blah, 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 you know, all of that. So you don't have to tell me that to convince me I'm going to exercise anyway. Um, but I've changed my exercise approach a little bit. So now I do a lot more weightlifting than I used to when I was a runner and just running, I felt and looked weak. And I noticed that a lot of other runners looked weak. <laughs> um, and so I started doing some weightlifting and other types of exercise to really make my body strong, not just my lungs, <laughs> as it were. So that's that's a lot of what I'm doing these days. Um, I Because I am lifting weights, I'm also counting macronutrients. So on top of making sure that I get my microbial accessible carbohydrates in my plants. I make sure that I'm getting a certain amount of protein and a certain amount of carbs and a certain amount of fat um, to keep my body functioning well so that it can do those exercises that I'm asking it to do. And I've seen amazing results. I blogged about it. Um, you can check it out. <laughs> we'll definitely um, put those links up there in the show notes. Yeah, um, but it's been really fun to add the the microbial component to to what originally started as like just this I didn't believe in it. I was like, well, whatever, you know, it's just another one of those diets. Maybe it'll work for me. Maybe it won't. It's not going to hurt me. So I'm just going to do it because if it does help me make gains in the weight room, then great. And it did. I was shocked. And now I'm like, okay, now we're going to add the, the microbiome component to it. Let's not just count the macronutrients, but let's make those macronutrients count. So am I getting 70 grams of carbs a day? Is it refined flour and refined sugar? Or is it fiber carbohydrates from plants that my microbiome will really appreciate me giving to it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of um, uh, plant available um, or prebiotics, as it were, uh, are you talking about like inulin and fructooleosaccharides? Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not taking supplements actually. So I'm of the camp. Um, that really feels like if you are eating the foods that you should eat, uh, you don't need a supplement unless you have some genetic deficiency or other reason why you can't, you know, get something from your diet. But for most people, if you just eat the right foods, you're going to get everything that you need. Um, there are plenty of prebiotic fibers in foods that if you just eat the whole food, you're getting it. Um, so I don't supplement. I just watch what I'm eating and make sure that I'm having a variety of different vegetables, nuts and seeds, um, and fruits that are low in sugar, um, to my diet. And I've noticed a, a difference personally. I have mm -hmm. more energy. Um, so for me, it's working. Mm -hmm. I've definitely noticed the same too. My wife and I just finished a two week, um, smoothie cleanse, if you want to call it, or a fast, if you want to call it. Um, I did this a couple of years ago and I just did greens, but I was struggling. My brain was struggling <laughs> by the end of it. So this time we, we had a um, bit of protein, bit of coconut oil, um, seeds and nuts in it as well. Oh, the, the difference between my thinking then, you know, and before it's, it's yeah. amazing. And you know, when you say greens, like you bring up a really good point. One of the things that we learned from American gut was not that you eat vegetables or fruits, but that you eat different kinds. So you can be a vegetarian and eat kale just the same as you can be a vegetarian and eat French fries. And I bet you those two people are different. Um, <laughs> and neither of them is going to be particularly healthy. You have to have variety. Um, fruits and vegetables have colors due to antioxidants and different molecules in them that are important for you. So if you want to get a lot of different, you know, antioxidants and molecules that are good for you, eat fruits that are a different color, <laughs> eat vegetables that are a different color, uh, eat the rainbow as it were, not Skittles, but <laughs> a natural, true, real good, healthy rainbow. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking to Graham Sait a little while ago, and he really talks about uh, the connection between soil health and human health. And he gave us a, a quick recipe of how you could 
do sort of like a rainbow sauerkraut to get all those different colors in there. But I think uh, the interesting point too is spinach is not just spinach. You know, people think of uh, what's ingrained in our culture of Popeye and eating spinach, but it depends on how you grow the spinach. Yeah, it determines what's in there. If it's in a mineral-rich, healthy soil, it's going to have different stuff than if it's grown hydroponically. Absolutely. And actually, now that you mention it, um, my husband and I started getting one of the CSA boxes. And so every two weeks, we have a box delivered to our door. It's full of fruits and vegetables that come from local farms throughout California. And uh, the first time, I'll never forget our first box. I pulled out a bunch of carrots and they were full of dirt from the ground. So, you know, they hadn't even washed them. And I was like, look at this. They left the dirt on the carrots and they smelled so pungently. I've When I started washing them and the water hit them, the smell that was released from those carrots was stronger than anything I've ever smelled, even organic carrots that I had bought from the supermarket. And that really struck me. And so... I also I had peaches in the box and I made a smoothie with the peaches and then some bananas that I had gotten from the store and a couple other things that I threw in there and the only thing you could taste was the peach. So I you know again it's anecdotal. I don't know the science behind it, but clearly there's something going on there <laughs> with that food that was grown in healthy soil like you said. Mm-hmm. Um not hydroponically grown, not chock full of of um, pesticides or anything, uh, I can, I can notice it in the smell and in the flavor of the foods. Uh, that's what I love. I, uh, just love to be able to go into the garden and grab some food or, you know, go to the local farmer's market and grab some food and just eat it straight, just eat it even without washing it sometimes. Um, but I, I'd like to ask you about that. Is there anything, um, in our everyday environment where we should be careful, you know, um, I, I don't use pesticides in my garden, but is is there other things that we should look out for? Uh, any any places, especially uh, with my two young kids, should I let them eat food with dirt on their hands, or how do we determine that? Or you know, certain areas should should we wash our hands when we get off the bus? What, what would you say? What what are some of the areas we should be careful of in our in our everyday lives? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, just it's a little bit of of common sense, right? So absolutely wash your hands when you get off the bus. I would, you know, (laughs) you don't know what other people are doing. And, you know, right now in the U.S., there's the huge flu epidemic um, going on, which is a huge problem. And so, you know, think of the time of year, too. If it's wintertime, the time when colds and flus, be especially careful and vigilant. For me, um, I... Like the rule of thumb that I have is if it's my home, it's it's all systems go. So if I drop a carrot on the floor, I'm going to eat it. Um, you know, garden outside, I will eat that food because I know exactly how it was treated. I know what was on it and what wasn't. Um, when you're out in public, you know, you can't control what other people are doing. So just be a little more cautious there. Um Here's another good example. Uh, Many people are aware of the research showing that kids who grow up on farms uh, have lower risk of asthma and allergies than kids who don't. That doesn't mean take your kid to the petting zoo and then let your kid, you know, stuff his face without washing his hands. Um, There are really real risks associated with certain animals in petting zoos. (laughs) You know, if you have your own horses or your own cows, and you know the health status of those animals, that's different. Um, but when you don't know, when you're out in public and you, you're not in control and you don't know all of the little things going on behind the scenes, just use caution and, you know, wash before you eat. Um, and that's it. That's what I, that's mm-hmm. kind of how I operate. And I don't have kids yet, but one day when I do, that's the rule of thumb that will operate by. Mm-hmm. Oh, and certainly when you go to the mall and they have those kid play things. Oh. <laughs> Don't eat before washing your hands after being one of those things. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. Well, thank you so much for your time today to talk to us um, from your perspective as a scientist in the field of the microbiome, Embriette. Really appreciate it. We just want to um, ask you a final question. You know, the, the probiotic life, 
What, what does that mean to you? What does a, a probiotic life mean to you? Well, I really like how you explained it in the beginning. It's not just talking about a probiotic bacterial species, but it's talking about pro-life. And um, as a spiritual person too, really, I, I observe Torah and everything in Torah is pro-life. And so everything about my life is pro-life. Um, and so everything that I do is not only trying to make my life better, but the lives of my little microbes inside me better because I know if mm-hmm. they make their lives better, my life will be better. And so I, there's not a day or even a moment of the day where before I do something, whether it's eating something or going somewhere, that I think about what effect will this have and how can I maybe make this effect a more positive one. So that's what probiotic means to me, just optimizing my life through optimizing the life of my microbiome. Mm-hmm. Sounds like uh, wise words to live by. <laughs> well, once again, thank you so much for being on The Probiotic Life. Um, and uh, I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Hear, hear an update. Yeah, thank you. It was, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to my rambling. <laughs> Well, I hope that was intellectually stimulating for you as much as it was for me. I really enjoyed what Embryat had to say. And as you can see, we are piecing together this mosaic of what I like to call the probiotic life. So if you feel like you have a piece of the puzzle, then reach out to us. Connect with us through Facebook, through our Instagram account, or on our website, just shoot me an email. And you can find all the ways to connect with Embryette in the show notes. And I hope you are inspired to live a probiotic life. So until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, on our website, theprobiotic.life. Today on the... <laughs> I'll try that again, sorry.